Welcome to Coffee with Romina. This is your host, Romina Muhammadai, award-winning leader, negotiation and sales expert, and your new favorite podcaster. Each week, we bring you inspiring stories from extraordinary people of diverse industries, sharing practical advice and tips on how to overcome career and personal obstacles, define your own success, and take charge of your own destination. Thank you for spending time with us today. Now let the show begin. Hello, my beautiful people, and welcome back to Coffee with Romina podcast. This is your favorite podcaster, Romina, and I hope you guys are having a tremendous and a fabulous Tuesday, or if you're listening to this episode any other day but a Tuesday, well, I hope you're having a tremendous and a fabulous day as well. If you are one of our loyal listeners, welcome back, everybody, and thank you for trusting me with your time. And if you are brand new to our podcast, welcome to our show, and I hope you enjoy this episode as well as... Make sure to hit that subscribe button wherever you are getting your podcast juice from, so this way you do not miss any other episodes that we publish in the future. Now, you guys, if you are listening from Apple Podcasts, you already know, go ahead and give us the five-star review, a short comment, tell us which one of our episodes was your favorite episode so far, or if you just want to leave us an encouraging and a yay, good comment, go ahead and do so, because... Everybody, you guys know how Apple Podcast algorithm works. Let's push this podcast out there and make it available and expose it to other new listeners because we touch aspects of personal and professional growth on this podcast. And since we're talking about growth, uh, actually, today's guest is the author of Growth or Bust. It's Mark Faust, you guys. I'm super duper excited about today's episode because we are going to talk about ways how to innovate your business, which is super duper important. So all my entrepreneurs out there that you are listening to this episode, all business owners, or if you are looking to actually launch a business, this episode is a must for you because this episode will cover game-changing secrets from a leading corporate strategist and proven turnaround strategies to grow your business. We are going to dive deep into the seven essential areas of objectives and how you can actually innovate. Well, kind of to summarize it, you guys, market and marketing is the first one. Second one, innovation. Third, cultural. Fourth, resources. I mean, human resources, physical, IT, anything resources that a company definitely can use. Productivity is next. Community and social responsibility. It's absolutely very important. And six, and last but not least, profit. I don't want to take too much time of this episode, you guys, because it is a longer episode than normal episodes because we really dive in into ways how we can innovate our business, how we can grow our business. And just like the title of the book, of Mark's book is Growth or Bust. So if you want to grow, stick in, listen to the full episode. If you want to bust, then do your own thing. But I highly advise you guys to actually take notes on this episode. Go ahead and look at the show notes as well. I will attach Mark's information in there. He is phenomenal. He is one of my favorite people out there and definitely a business partner as well. So make sure to connect with him if you have any questions. I don't want to take too much time up this episode. I know I'm kind of playing fifth gear, but I want you guys to enjoy it. It's a lot of information, so I have nothing else to say, but enjoy! Mark, how are you today? Terrific. How about you? I'm good. Thank you so much for asking. First off, I want to thank you for being a part of the show. And second, I actually want to pass over the mic to you to tell the audience a little bit. How did you go about having the career that you currently do? So when I was in sixth grade, I remember the pastor of the church saying, now's the time to discern your vocation. And I didn't feel called to the cloth. So 
I remember coming back two weeks later when we were due to tell them. And I, all I could think of was, I want to work with a lot of different businesses, either selling what they have or helping them grow. And lean toward the latter all through school. I didn't even know what a consultant was really when I got hired as one out of school. I met my first boss in, in a class. He was a 50-year-old, very accomplished executive through the Fortune 500 VP level. And he had a consulting firm. I made a sales call on him and he hired me and, and he, he said, rather than trying to do this on your own or starting off so soon, let me mentor you for a few years. And Howard Bond was the best mentor you could ever have. I interviewed because of him, many turnaround CEOs, top level, you know, Fortune 500 executives. Uh, in, in fact, one of my favorite uh, Fortune 500 CEOs I met because of Howard, John Pepper turned around Procter & Gamble, a Fortune 20 company that actually hit the, the skids around 2000 and came back to turn them around. And did it in, in splendid form. And I got to interview him. He was kind of the impetus for my first book, mm -hmm. Growth or Bust. And, uh, but that was it. That was the impetus to, to meet all these people that knew how to grow companies, even if they were on the edge of failing. And that was around, it was 1990, after a few years with Howard at Executech, that I started Echelon Management. And I've since worked with several hundred companies, but kind of just moved toward that direction since a very young age. And I know you mentioned the book a little bit, Girl or Bust, and I actually want to focus on it because number one, I'm going to put the, the link on the show notes for the listeners. Number two, you touched the seven essential areas of objectives, which I definitely want to focus this interview on it because it's seven really important areas in the business. And I have a lot of questions regarding yep. those. So yep. I'm going to run through the seven areas first, and then we'll go ahead and go one by one. So the first one is the market and marketing. The second mm -hmm. one is innovation. Third, cultural. Fourth, resources. Fifth, productivity. Social responsibility, which that's a super important one, and I definitely want to focus on that. And of course, profit, because without profit, then that's no business, right? <laughs> it's the fuel for growth, yes. Absolutely. So let's touch base a little bit first on the market and marketing. How important is it to make sure in order for you to innovate, to really focus on hitting the right market to begin with? And how can you innovate by not missing your market that you need to focus on? As uh, my favorite mentor in the business, Peter Drucker said, the four and eventually five most important questions, as he called it in any business for any organization, actually, was first defining what business are you really in? What is your mission? Mm -hmm. Why do you exist? And so that question is amazing how just asking the simplest of questions like that, which is a market and marketing related dialogue, I call it sometimes, when you're still discovering what the objective needs to be, you'll have a dialogue about what business are we really in? And so we could go down that path and talk about how a lot of uh, just making the right decision about what kind of business you are mm -hmm. uh, can actually set you at an angle to give you competitive advantage and strategic uh, advantage. Uh, but, you know, those questions in market and marketing also touch on what, who is our ideal customer? What does the customer value and how do we uniquely meet what they value? Uh, how are we divergent from the marketplace? And so right there, you're hitting core three pillars of strategy in the market and marketing objectives, vision, you know, where are we going? Uh, where do we want to be? What, you know, what business do we want to be in going forward? customers who our ideal customers are and what do they value, you know, is our focus. And so uh, vision, focus, and divergence 
are the three core words of strategy. And you, you figure that out in the dialogue of market marketing related questions that lead to market marketing objectives, which should be measurable and somewhat of a stretch to achieve targets that you're going for and timed and with accountability. And then you have a good SMART objective, the old acronym of specific, measurable, accountable, realistically challenging and timed make for a SMART objective. But that's a little bit about what those type of objectives are about. And, you know, and even also, how do we, what, what do we need to change in regards to our product and our market? A lot of companies can accelerate growth tremendously. My goal with a lot of companies is to actually see how much quicker can they double. Mm-hmm. I'm working with the owners and leaders of companies that, that usually want to accelerate growth on top of already good growth, but they need to discern what do they need to stop doing. So a lot of times the, the objectives in market marketing also have to do with what products or markets, if we weren't in them today, would we not get into? So that's strategic abandonment type questions in the market and marketing area. This show is sponsored by Sales Law of Averages online course. The course is a business development course teaching sales professionals and entrepreneurs how to master their sales funnel through sales and negotiation techniques. We all work hard on our leads, but unfortunately often fail to convert those leads to sales. Well, now you can say goodbye to those days. Order the course today at connectwithromina.com forward slash courses to get a deep discount. Receive access to over 40 videos, five hours of training material, and study even movie negotiation scenes today for just $79. Use the promo code Romina, which is spelled R-O-M-I-N-A at checkout. Again, the website is connectwithromina.com forward slash courses and use the promo code Romina, that's spelled R-O-M-I-N-A at checkout. Master your sales today. Something else that I also wanted to ask regarding this is because we a lot of our audience is actually entrepreneurs. They might be solopreneurs or they might be with a small business. They're trying to double and increase their sales at the end of the day. And you did mention earlier that you need to know what kind of business you are. Now, whenever you ask people, what do you do? A lot of times people tell you, I sell packages. So how important is it for you to market yourself? For example, I'm in the business of selling or I'm in the business of helping people get and then however your service can help them to get to that point. What is the best way to uh, to strategize that you'd say for marketing reasons? So there's actually a strategy dialogue I have in my book, High Growth Levers, where we discern which of one of 10 areas type of business are you in? And by that, I mean, you know, what is the primary source of leverage? I call it the PSL. So for example, you mentioned packages. Mm-hmm. So I'll just go through a few of the 10 potential angles, if you will, primary sources of leverage a package company might have. One might be in a market-focused packaging business. They might only sell packages to the medical industry. And so because they chose that industry, they become a specialist in it and hopefully have an advantage because of that. Another might be production-focused. A lot of package companies, box companies I've worked with, might have 12 different lines of box creating machine, you know, machinery, and they're trying to keep it up and running either one shift or two shifts or three shifts all week long. So the key is how do we be production driven and have an advantage by being highly efficient in our, our productivity of all this equipment we have? So that could be an angle you take, very different than the market. You probably have tighter margins, lower prices, et cetera. Another might be, as you mentioned, selling, the way in which we sell our packages. So I know one fellow right now is turning around a company 
that sells a type of packaging, but rather than sell the packaging, what they're really trying to do is innovate the business that they're working with. And they design custom-made packaging that improves the productivity and the profitability of their customers. So they have a sales process that's really a consulting process that's profit improvement oriented for their customer. And the packaging has nothing to do with it. They can make the world's best package by have it outsourced to somebody. It's more about their selling approach, yet they're supposedly in the same business. So you're hitting upon a theme of strategic thinking that just in the area of market marketing dialogue, trying to discern what our objectives should be, you, you got to ask that question. What is divergent about us and where's our advantage and what really is the primary source of leverage? And once you discern that, it becomes a lot easier to innovate because if you've picked that one area, whether it's production or market focused, you can now focus your innovation on that one thing and you'll get a much higher return from your investment of time and people and money in innovating in that area. So, yeah, I mean, you're hitting right on the core strategy questions. Since you mentioned innovation, which is very important, that's actually the second area, the second essential area for objectives. Let's talk a little bit about innovation and why is it important in order for you to grow or if you don't do it right, your company is going to go bankrupt? Well, for everybody out there who's a manager or leads a company, know this, that these are seven essential areas of objectives, which all organizations should have objectives clarified for. Most companies don't have innovation objectives written down. And, and to me, that's you're guilty of managerial malfeasance when you don't have all of these identified. Now, an innovation objective, what that might look like is it could be based either on a constraint of your ability to deliver or in the marketplace, or it could be based on an opportunity to exploit, but you are setting a clear objective that we are going to innovate and create, and, and you got to define the word innovation. We're not just problem solving when we have a constraint. We're trying to reach a new dimension of performance. That's the definition of innovation. It, it is change that creates a new dimension of performance. It doesn't just repair and bring us back to where performance was before a problem started. Uh, that's just problem solving. Very different. And yet you need both in business. But the point is, is where could we create a new dimension of performance? So for example, John Deere invented and innovated a great way in which to harvest crops. But perhaps his greatest innovation happened to be, might have been his financial innovation in financing this equipment that nobody could afford. And that aspect of financing the equipment. In fact, GE just did this recently. I met their CFO of the jet engine division. And he came up with the, the, the innovation of not selling, uh, rather than selling an engine to a Boeing uh, or somebody like that or the a government, rather selling power by the hour. And so therefore, it's more of a lease. And that way it eliminates the risk for the company or the government who may not know whether or not they can really profit from buying that engine. So that was a brilliant innovation that had nothing to do with the product. And so you need to think holistically around your, your business and here's, I'm going to give probably the most important innovation tool there is that the fewest number of companies implement, as was prescribed by the man who came up with the word strategy for business, which was Peter Drucker. His publisher wouldn't let him use the word strategy because nobody knew what it meant. It was a military term back in the 1940s and 50s. So he came up with the, the phrase self-assessment, but one of the required steps of self-assessment 
is a process of depth interviews with your customers and both your customers as well as prospects, and then maybe even also your lost customers, or as I call it, uh, your champs, your chumps, and on the stumps. What I mean by that, who are the champions of your product or service? Who are the ones who might have left? And who are the ones that are looking to buy more or engage your company? And when you interview them, not for the purpose of selling something, but strictly to understand their issues, uh, the, the Japanese call it genchi gabitsu. It's putting yourself in the, the seat of the customer and seeing it from their perspective. And I've done thousands of these interviews for hundreds of companies of mine, and I've never failed to not find literally seven figures of incremental sales growth doing this as a project for any company of $20 million or more. That's how powerful this is at the market marketing objectives clarification or opportunity assessment, as well as the innovation process. But by listening to customers, especially as a third party, they'll tell me things they'll never tell the founder or the CEO, especially the salespeople who they feel like they're in a constant negotiation with. But I ask them questions like, you know, if all the stars were to align, we could innovate anything we could innovate that has anything to do with our part of how we work together. What might be some of the problems we could solve or things we could change that might help you to improve performance? In fact, how could we help you grow your business? And when I ask that question, almost 90 plus percent of the time, especially in B2B sales with another CEO who's buying hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars of, of services or product from, from my client, they'll say, that's a great question. And they, they're kind of on the back of their heels and it takes them some time to get to some ideas. And so we'll talk about other things first and come back to that. But that's where I get the, the core of great innovation. And so that whole process of depth interviews, I also describe in my books. I'd be glad to give my books out to anybody who requests them to me. But the bottom line is this area of marketing uh, objectives and innovation objectives is really the core of, of where your strategic strategy in a business is, is founded. And, and it's where we don't spend nearly enough time in most all businesses. And even nonprofits and governments need to go through the same process as well. And I, I have to highlight, because I love the way you asked the question, like you mentioned, you were the third party. So the customer or the client can tell you things that they cannot tell the business directly. But the kind of questions that you asked are very fundamental questions, because number one, they're open-ended questions I would like to highlight. There are deeper questions this way that you get to the root of it and you welcome the conversation with the curiosity. So it's a lot of elements that just go on that question alone. And because you did mention salespeople, for example, because they feel a lot coming from a sales world with over 10 years of experience. A lot of times customers feel like as is there is this rebuttal, because unfortunately, a lot of salespeople show very anger towards the deal. They just want to get the deal at the end of the day, care about the commission and don't care about long term. And which kind of goes really great with culture. Immature salespeople, immature salespeople, <laughs> truly mature and others focused and frankly, loving salespeople are more concerned. The most, you know, the, the best salespeople are focused on the customer intently. Absolutely. And customers sense that. But you're right. Too many are caught up in just, you know, they, making. Too many. Yeah. Too many think about that commission just right now without realizing. And it's. Like coming, let's say automotive business for a second, right? Automotive business, mm -hmm. people are just very, very eager to get that commission. Don't think further. Well, 5'3", me <laughs> working with 50 other males on the car business, 
I didn't care about that commission as much as I cared about the person driving it was happy because I always followed that the referral system. So I want to highlight something else, which will move to the cultural too, because you create that culture. At the end of the day, I feel like you are your one person. You are, you are a business. You are your own LLC, you know, create the culture, that culture, you want the culture of helping people going back. What we said earlier, that's the culture that it needs to create. And you coming in as the expert and asking those questions, now you're stimulating clients to think that direction too, not just a one-time deal type of transaction. And it's like, okay, I got my profit. You signed the contract, then goodbye. Because that's not how you do business long-term. Amen. And you're you're hitting a, a key component of this is that uh, these first three areas of objectives are also... Uh, in a way, uh, uh, three sides of a one-sided Mobius loop or a three-sided Mobius loop. Mobius loops only have one side, if if you're familiar with them. And on the cover of my book, High Growth Levers, I have a three-sided Mobius loop with strategy and uh, culture and innovation on each of the sides. You could could put strategy and marketing, if you will, because marketing truly is a, it is strategy, if you will. It's a focus on the customer and what they most value and understanding that value throughout you know, the entirety of your business is really a, a better definition of marketing. It's not about promotion. That's not what we mean by that. It's, it's more about understanding the customer. And you will understand the customer better. You will be better at strategy. You will be more innovative if you have a great culture. And if you build a culture and value certain aspects of that culture, that feed into innovation and strategy. And so what you're hitting on here is that these first three areas of objectives are also three sides of the, the, the three-sided Mobius loop for growth, strategy, innovation, and culture. So let's say you have higher executives have the culture niche down to the, you know, they know exactly what kind of business they're in and everything, but let's talk resources. You talk about getting rid of the bottom 10% and you also if I, before we go there, if I could just mention one thing, you yeah. got to have cultural objectives, no matter how good your culture is. This is another area most companies do not have cultural objectives. And again, objectives have got to be measured. Uh, there's got to be a process of continuous improvement. And the best run companies in the world, whether it's the best places to work like a Zappos or something, are always raising the bar on the culture. So uh, we can't pass over that too quickly. But to segue into resource objectives, well, I was going to merge actually culture okay. with re- with resources when it comes to hiring process and when oh, it yeah. comes to the team. So that's yeah. why I kind of wanted to combine it because uh, you mentioned that you should hire uh, based on value and based on culture, mm-hmm. uh, making sure that you have the right team with you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Whenever you're running into a open border recruitment status like we have right now, for example, because everything is virtual. How can companies hire based on culture whenever they don't see the culture day to day in an office and whenever they can not transmit that culture perfectly, but also you have a competition trying to steal your top talent because of this no border going on with recruiting? Let me tell you a story to illustrate this multifaceted question you're putting out about. I know. It's a loaded question. (laughs) Because you're asking about how do you use the values to leverage hiring the right people and yet magnify the strength of the culture, et cetera, et cetera. By the way, all these objectives are in order of priority as well as order of chronology. 
So they build on top of each other. And let me give you the, the story example. I had a wonderful client, Kagi Manufacturer, in a small town of 3,000 in Clarion, Iowa. And the third generation, Alan wanted to take it over from his dad and was ready to take it over. And when I was engaged, they were about a $70 million company. And Alan had a vision. And in his heart and his mind, he had a strategy and a, a vision of the culture and what it could become. It was already a good place to work. In fact, it was very impressive. But he wanted to, as far as strategy and innovation was concerned, he wanted to be the Silicon Valley of application equipment in the agricultural world. And secondly, he wanted to have a best place to work in Iowa. And when we first engaged, it was so hard for them to get engineers to move to Clarion, Iowa, a town of 3,000, an hour and 10, 15 minutes from Des Moines, the nearest bigger town. And he wanted to transform that and create a magnetism around the culture. And some people weren't on board with that. It wasn't a, a clear you know, decision to the team, but to him, it was crystal. And when he codified his vision, I was sitting with him at a, a lake resort that he would vacation at, and he spoke almost poetically. And after about five pages of note-taking and a few beers, there was this vision, one of the longest I ever wrote. It was gorgeous, inspiring. And, and some people, it intimidated. It was too much there. Here's what happened. though: Because of that vision, which is an aspect of strategy, and an aspect of market marketing objectives, and tied into also the cultural. He wanted people to wake up to a, a purpose and not an alarm clock. What happened over the three and a half years we worked together is, and probably within less than 12 months of, of that lake getaway retreat, he became a top six best place to work in Iowa. In fact, not a year and a half later, Tony Shea of Zappos, the founder of Zappos, a billionaire, had Alan in his house and, and he was finishing up a year of thousands of people coming through their cultural boot camp. And he said to Alan, you know, you're one of the two best CEOs to come through my boot camp this year. I want you to come back and speak on what you did in Clarion, Iowa to become a top 10 place to work there and to impress me so much with your cultural turnaround, a place that was already a great place to work. Yeah. And he made it excellent because they set clear objectives around the culture. They also codified an excellent set of uh, we'd had a retreat with all the management team and we went through the process of values clarification. And, you know, you have the non-negotiable values like integrity, et cetera, but you also have the aspirational values such as having joy at work, et cetera. And they had a great set of values. But here's what he committed to. In regards to hiring and firing, he fired people who would repeatedly not show any intention to living up to the values. They hired people in teams rather than just HR and maybe another person hire, you know, interviewing people because they were so desperate to bring people on. There were teams of sometimes dozens of people that might interview an individual. What people didn't realize is when we picked them up at the, the neighborhood airport uh, from the Hagee Plain, uh, that we might have flown him in on, the, the person driving was actually an HR person just acting like a driver. And depending on how they treated them, they might have gotten a green or red flag right there, not even knowing it. But they created such an integral 
you know, a connection between the values, the hiring process, and the retention process, the training process. Every Monday morning, they kicked off with a kind of Tony Robbins style inspirational set of speaking and trainings and celebrations of people who were living up to these, these values. And that created a reverberation and momentum of the culture that they needed. So in order now they had people uh, begging to come from John Deere, you know, the largest uh, and supposedly best place to work in regards to their type of equipment. But engineers, uh, they had more than enough and they had the world's best engineers in their uh, area coming to to small little town, Clarion, Iowa. Now, so what 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 happened there? Oh, and ultimately John Deere had to buy them because they were becoming uh, too innovative and, too and competitive. Shut down the many billions of dollars of business for John Deere. But the bottom line is the vision uh, tied to the culture, that tied to the hiring process and human resource objectives, which had to do with very specific. The, these four areas of, of resource objectives, human, financial, physical, and IT, we know regardless of the size of our business, whether it's a $1 million services business or a $100 million manufacturing business, we know what it's going to look like and what kind of resources we'll likely need when we're 50% bigger or 25% bigger or 150% bigger. We know that there are these echelons of growth that we're going to go to where the resources are probably going to require. For example, at Hagee, we, I remember Alan saying, I'd like to build a, a plant across the street. We're going to need so many tens of thousands of square feet. I could buy it for X, build it for Y. We could probably save up for three to five years and have that. Well, guess what happened? Because that put was stated in the vision. Within about nine months, the, right next door was a warehouse that was three times bigger and we got for dimes on the dollar. And frankly, I think it happened because it was thought of first up here and conversations happened. And sure enough, you know, the opportunity came in. That's the power of a vision connecting to your resource obje objectives of how much physical space will we need? What kind of physical tools will we need? What kind of people will we need? And then building a backlog of people you've got to hire well before you need to hire. Even though we went through a period of time here recently where there was an unemployment level that jumped for a while, uh, even if it's high in your neck of the woods, the bottom line is you should be looking for who you need to hire six months out and have them ready right now and line them up deep enough that you have a choice of three and not one for very specific positions. So, you know, that's that's how you set adequately these four areas of re resource objectives. And in the books, I detail a variety of questions to go deeper to make sure you're not leaving anything off the table. I love all that. And that's a lot of information right there for the audience. But also, Talking about getting the right people. My brother is an engineering consultant. So I want to kind of bring up an example that he shared with me too, which I thought it was very interesting since you talked about the HR person might be the driver, the chauffeur. Whenever they were trying to recruit for the new operationals manager for the company, and the company is for over 70 years, the number one place to work in Florida. It's a really big production company. Something which I found it weird, but I love the, the idea. Uh, something that they did is whenever they ordered food, they ordered the wrong food for two people that they actually wanted to hire. They ordered the wrong food intentionally because they wanted to see how they, how they would react to something not being to what they wanted. And also, even if they would notice it was the wrong food and they just twisted just a little bit something, you know, 
resembling with that. One of them, which was the strongest candidate, did not even realize it was the wrong food to begin with. The other one just said, oh, this is not what I order. I cannot eat this. They actually did not end up hiring none of them because they're like, we want to see whenever you meet a problem, number one, are you even going to notice it? Number two, how are you going to take charge and be able to fix it? Number three, how adoptive are you? All these things, which I was like, this is an amazing idea. And now we're talking for like a six-figure job to hire somebody that is looking for such a position, right? But little things like this, which I think psychologically, they're very important to make sure you also get the right person. So I love that whole chauffeur idea. That's getting added to my bucket as well. <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, and, and yet on the other hand, you have to be a little careful. I mean, there could be people with, oh, dietary restrictions or something like that. Oh, no, that. they already <laughs> asked. Yep, no, they asked. Because I was like, what if there's oh, okay. allergies? What is this? He's like, no, yeah. we already asked. We gave them, you know, all this. Okay. And I was like, that's Good. such... Good to hear. Yeah, I was like, that, that heard... could be a little tricky. I've heard of people say, if they won't have a beer with us, we're not going to hire them. And yet, uh, you know, half of the people out there are told never to drink on an interview. But, or they, they just don't drink. So you got to respect that. But yeah, no, there's a lot of great little tricks. And frankly, you know, Microsoft was known for using uh, questions that if you couldn't answer them correctly, like why are sewer lids round, they wouldn't hire you. And they just figured it was kind of an IQ screening process. Yet, you know, on the on the other hand, you might have had somebody that was a genius there that just was having a bad day. So, <laughs> you know, one best practice that's incontrovertible is, is have a multiple of people interview. Yeah. Do not just rely on, on your one interview uh, just because you're desperate to hire a position. Hire slow and fire fast, as they say. <laughs> well, also, if you do group interviews, I think you can absolutely see like how two or three really smart minds can work together. And yeah. maybe the, you know, the the combined forces can take the company to a whole nother level. So you're hitting a great, be another best practice is the, the best book on interviewing ever written was by Richard Fear, F-E-A-R. In fact, that first boss I had, I was alluding to earlier, Howard Bond had, that was the first book he had me read. And it's called the evaluation interview. And he said, we're in HR consulting here, Mark. And if we don't know how to hire people excellently, uh, since that's a part of what we're doing here, and why people get our advice on their their teams, then then we're not worth our salt. Most companies do a mediocre job of hiring. And, and those questions Richard Fear goes through are just brilliant about how they triangulate toward truth. I'm not a big fan of a lot of psychological profile tools because there's a bias to them and you could almost weed out needed diversity. But good interview questions are absolutely essential. And, you know, I have that. Uh, tools like that as well, I, I share with my clients. So I also think during an interview for the interview, it's very important for the person getting interviewed, it's important to ask questions to the hiring manager. Uh, I have yeah. a couple of favorite ones. What's your best question that you've gotten from somebody when you've been on the hiring panel? What's the best question that you got from a candidate that you can recall? Well, I would have them describe their favorite positions, bosses, and things of that nature. You want people who have a sense of engagement and challenge and joy in the workplace. So it's not that it's that unusual of a question, although it's it's ironic how little it's asked. Who was your best boss? When were you happiest at work? What are you most proud of? Things like that. But you know, you triangulate that with you know, you know worst boss and, and least favorite jobs or least favorite bosses, et cetera, and why? 
if you want to know how to manage somebody, you can get almost all of that from the interview with just the appropriate questions. A creative thing for weeding out people's weaknesses is when you're checking on references, which again, most nobody does, ask the people, hey, we're really big on training here. As we go to hire so-and-so, what, what areas we can train on most anything? We have modules on most everything you can imagine. What, what would you recommend we put them through as some of the initial skills oh, training like or whatever, whatever area you think they could use a little more training on? And just listen to how they answer that. And you'd be surprised how you'll get the, the hidden weaknesses that didn't come out in any of the interviews. That's a that's a really great method to ask it too, because you're check you're checking the referral, and you're also trying to also see what's the weakness, and you know yeah. that's when the oh well this one time they did this, and I think they need help with this. That's a really good question. Let's move into because so far again to kind of uh, summarize, you recovered market and marketing, innovation, culture, and resources. Let's talk about productivity. Yes. How do we innovate through productivity? And also, I'd love for you to touch the sales portion in here, too. So one of the top challenges for every manager is the balancing of the limited resources that we're always presented with in any organization. So if you simplify the, the resources into just the, the three buckets of people, things, and money, you basically have a balance uh, that's between costs and, and time and, you know, limitations of what people can do, whether it's skills-based or productivity-based because of just the lack of, of human resources. Because you could always spend more money and buy more pr production uh, machinery or buy more, hire more people. But there's a limit to how much you can spend. So what productivity objectives have to do is they, they first look at what's the best balance of our resources so that we put just enough in each of the areas and don't spend too much of any of the others and burn them out, burning out people, burning out of our, that's why they call it burn rate of our financial line, uh, whether that's uh, credit or, or cash flow, et cetera. And, and then also, you, you know, replacing equipment and other physical resources you might need and having enough profit to reinvest. And, and this ties very closely to profitability requirements. And this is why this set of questions and objectives come first, because you don't know how much profit you need. Profit doesn't exist, by the way. Uh, most people, that shocks them. But, but all profit is future fixed cost. What most employees don't realize is that the vast majority of profit doesn't go in the back pocket of, of some business owner. In fact, I've worked with uh, over 100 business owners who I could say, uh, pay themselves less than they pay their top salespeople or other top executives and make far less than what anybody on the team would realize. And, and one of the ways we ratchet up innovation and ideas coming forth is we say, look, you know, we're not going out of business or we are going out of business if we don't turn things around. That's kind of the turnaround mindset theme in my books is that you can apply that turnaround mindset to even a healthy business and say, look, Let's pretend we are going out of business and we have to cut back. What would we cut? What would we innovate? What would we improve? Because the fact is, is that this owner pays him or herself less than some of you out there. They could sell all this and take what the value of the company is and reinvest it somewhere and make more than they're making now. Mm -hmm. So why are they here? And frankly, most times the answer is to protect and provide for those employees that are on their team. They usually frequently with 
I worked with over 60 third generation companies. And that is almost always uh, at number one or number two as to their raising DETRA, why they're there. It's to provide and protect for their employees in their town or where they, they exist and, and, and maybe their, their industry. But the bottom line is in these productivity objectives, you, you've got to discern how are we going to you know, leverage those different areas uh, and balance that appropriately? And what do we, we need for that to produce in order for us to optimize growth? And so there's a discernment there and you need to be careful not to stretch anything too thin to burn it out and then yet also discern how much profit can we capture and go forward and have enough to really grow at the optimal trajectory. There's somebody I was talking with today who has a company that's growing at a very, very fast rate. And so it's not about growing the top line more. It's not about growing the bottom line more, but it's it's about growing the organization. And so her productivity objectives have to do with how do we temper the over demand that we have and not burn out our people. So she has a very unique set of challenges there, but peeling through these, these objectives uh, as we speak. And you also touched base a little bit about the social responsibility whenever you were yep. talking about it. Why is that absolutely very important in order to innovate as well? So every business exists within a community, literally and figuratively. So there are these community and social responsibility objectives. And if you do not feed, a business is like an organ in a body. And if that organ does not feed back to the body, the body dies. And so that's the way businesses need to look at their communities. You know, there, there are examples of steel towns where the steel, steel mills back in the day of the 60s and 70s before the fall of steel in the United States sewed back and some of them sewed back into their towns so well that when they hit the skids, the towns came back and protected and helped them, you know, ride it out. And they were able to innovate. They bought time and were able to innovate into new aspects of business and survive. Others kind of in a way raped their town and didn't sew back into the town and were taking the resources and profits elsewhere and not sewing back into the town. And so when they hit the skids, there was almost a resentment and, and they suffered and went out of business. You know, the same thing could be said for everything from Silicon Valley to Salinas, uh, Ohio, is that if you do not sew into the town, as well as the community of your industry, you know, we're all within industries. And if you do not sew into the younger generation, you know, for example, you're a, an aspiring uh, consultant who's helping to grow businesses. If I don't help you, what happens to our industry and are the best practices being passed on? Pick any industry out there, steel, agriculture, you know, agriculture, I just love. They do a great job. I just interviewed three of the best ag businesses yesterday in a, a competition. Every one of them was exemplary about sewing back into the schools, sewing back into certain facets of their industry, mentoring and allowing for co-op, et cetera. Now, here's the flip of this and to get the most out of your investment. You don't just give and throw the money out there and not get anything back. You're a business. You need to leverage your resources. There's nothing wrong with investing into your community and getting the highest return possible, whether it's PR or in recruiting or whatever it may be. So for example, I mentioned Hagee, which tripled and went to $200 million in about three and a half years. And so the as the employees exploded, the need for employees from a couple of hundred to 
over 400. Part of their social responsibility and community objectives was was showing into certain engineering communities and agricultural communities and schools. And as they did that, that's what helped them to recruit both young and older recruits much more effectively and was why they had the high supply of great talent. That's one example of how in you know, those area of, that area of objectives can sow into talent management. It can sow back into profitability. It can sow back into marketing. You, you see this, it's popular now, yeah. almost to a fault of abuse. A lot of companies are saying, oh, we're a socially conscious business that, you know, every pair of shoes you buy, we buy one for the poor. Are they really doing that? I hope so. But, you know, is that also the reason why everyone buys those shoes? In some cases, it really is. It, it helps to market the company. In other cases, it's a feel-good thing, but you must think holistically where you could invest and think about the body in which you exist and feed back into that body. And and literally businesses, businesses can save and change the fate of a nation, just as you and I were talking about earlier, more than anything else. We have the greatest power in the community of a state, a nation, and in the world marketplace to make change to spread freedom, respect, and and liberty more than just about any other. I mean, the militaries, yes, that's one area, <laughs> but but business is far more powerful than they realize. Absolutely, and I I love talking about the social responsibility because also I would add one of my favorite books is The Conscious Capitalism by John Mackey. That's mm. a really good book too because just like you shared with that example, for, uh, John Mackey shares how Whole Foods is still existing today because of how conscious and how right they did to the customer. So when the flooding happened, the whole community just went to help. So even though I understand you're in the business to run a business, but you also have to show a responsibility or give back to the community somehow one way or another um, I've chosen the podcast way myself give back to the community I mean this is uh, worth a whole book like just listen to this interview alone not even thinking all, all other hundred interviews that we've launched so far but so the nonprofits will will say that they ask their sponsors not just for money yeah instead they phrase it as time talent and and treasure. And so businesses should look at it as well. How could they tithe time, talent, and treasure? And in fact, one of my clients has created a new nonprofit in Cincinnati, Ohio here. His name's Doug Bolton. And the nonprofit links up the talent, the untapped talent within companies to be brought into nonprofits. So he both finds customers on the nonprofit side and customers in the business side that have the need and the talent, and it's not about the money. Now, money comes as well. Uh, these people work in these nonprofits. They have a story to tell back at the workplace. If money's needed, clothing's needed, food, whatever it is, boom, it, it, they, it, there's more of it. But there's, an, a, there's a brilliant innovation. Uh, that is a social innovation that, that Doug came up with. It's just breakthrough, but it's also the type of thing that any business could do on their own and, and be more creative about. Yeah, even if profits are tight. In fact, the tighter profits might be, the more likely you probably need to get more creative about giving back. Uh, that oftentimes can become a, a great marketing. It's a growing of exposure, you know, the you know, more you need to get out there. And since we're talking about profit, which is the seventh point as well, how can we innovate through profit itself? Are you referring towards recycling the profit and, re, you know, growing the whole innovation overall? Or what do you exactly mean by it? Well, 
let's start with the first question, which is not how much profit can we make? What's the maximum? No, that's not the right question. The right question is actually what's the minimum we need to maintain our intended and appropriate growth trajectory? Some businesses really should not be growing at a certain time in their business. They should be hoarding resources to reinvest in innovation because they've reached a level of stagnation. So they don't need to grow in, in productivity and, and market, but rather grow in regards to offerings. So that's a totally different strategic decision that needs to be made versus we're growing at 50% a year and we need to have enough profit to spend on recruiters because we can't do it ourselves and just pay the recruiting fees and recruit as many people as possible and bring them on. There's a six to six to however many month lag before they're profitable as, as individual people or whatever the, the, the issue is. So what's the minimum amount of profit we need to maintain the growth trajectory we've determined that's appropriate for us? That's the first question. And, and to, to go back to that point about how profits don't exist, the thing to not forget is that not only do you need the, the profit for people and things, but you need the profit for your cost of capital. So it, most businesses to grow need capital. Now, you can either go to a bank or whoever owns the business has an investment in that business. They either bought it or built it and expended a tremendous amount of resources, which they could liquidate and take that capital and go someplace else. So if they could go someplace else and get 20% out of their money, why would you only pay that owner 10%? If they own 100% of the company, but, but could take that amount of money and get twice the return with half the risk, why would they stay in the business? So that's where a business has to be managed strategically. And so that's part of the strategic dialogue and the whole profitability discernment as well. So it's very different from one business to the next. Some, some people could be in a very young startup business and, and they're swinging for the fences and are willing to not make a lot of money and, and spend a lot of money to hopefully maybe get to a level that's, that's where it's much more profitable and ultimately maybe they, they plan to exit or, or not. But you got to discern all those things. So this ties back to another tool that most every leader in a company, uh, you know, top leader, the, the top echelon CEO and or the ownership should do. I take most all of my clients through a valuation of their business. And the reason this is so critical is because of three reasons. Number one, you'll get a dashboard of how your business is performing in 12 financial ratios compared to other businesses in the same industry. And you need to know how you're doing and if something's missing so that you know that you're, you're leveraging your resources optimally or well. So that's the first insight. Secondly, you need to be thinking longer term. Whether you sell or want to sell the business or not, you got to realize every owner of a business, every leader will go through an exit event, whether they want to or not. Death, divorce, despair, whatever it is. Sometime in their lifetime with that business, they will go through an exit. And they need to be thinking strategically about the value of that business, which is so much bigger than they typically think. And so what shocks most of my clients is when I lay out to them that 28-page report and I show them how they're doing against the industry. And they usually have some, some red zones and yellow zones and green zones that they can be proud of and whatnot. So objectives come from that. But when they see their asset, of what they have there. And there's actually four points of value, maybe even five, depending if 
uh, you know, you could be taken over by a, a company that could leverage your resources better. But there's the liquidation value, there's the asset value, there's the equity value, and you, you could have the synergy value with another company as well uh, if you were to be taken over. But the point is, is you got to understand all that and think holistically. You know, I have a, a company that even though I'm only pulling out a few hundred thousand dollars of cash every year based on my investment in this, I feel I can live on that. That's good enough. It's actually worth three million dollars or whatever it is. Uh, there's the hard assets, et cetera, the asset of, of what it's it's delivering and far as far as cash flow. But what could you do with that three million? Well, you might want to go get more capital to grow the business because it could be a $20 million business. It should be. You might have true competitive advantage, defensible competitive advantage that really in value to deliver to the customers, the marketplace that isn't getting out. And so you should capitalize on that and you should use more capital and growth into the business. Or it could be you, you should take what your assets inside you as a leader are and sell and liquidate that business and go to another another realm of, of, of influence. You know, you know, those are decisions that most CEOs and owners don't think about. And that's, that's why I'm a growth advisor. Even though I sit on a, a lot of company boards, I've started a lot of boards. I, I have a chapter in my book of the 40 best practices of boards. And frankly, most companies don't need a formal legal board of of directors, but they should have a board of advisors that's that's both formal in regards to holding leadership accountable and informal, like I'm more often used, to challenge them on what's missing. We all have our blind spots. And so the question is, what am I leaving on the table? What is it that I could still yet do with my culture to make people happier? What is it I could still yet do with the asset of this business to grow it? What is it I could still yet do to change and influence this marketplace. And it's those kind of dialogues that most CEOs cannot have. It's lonely at the top. And so that's why in my books, Growth or Bust and High Growth Levers, which again, I'll get to you for, for free if you reach out to me. I set up questions that force a dialogue individually and or ideally also with your team. And you can go through a process of discernment to see what, what the growth levers are because there are always growth levers in every organization uh, that are, are not being fully leveraged, pulled upon. And when you realize and think about what they are and you set the right objectives, going through all seven areas and go back and revisit the strategy on a quarterly basis. And as a process, not an event, you don't do strategic planning. That's an oxymoron. There's strategy, which are the decisions that determine the nature and direction of a company. And there's tactics which have to do with, you know, how we're going to get to that vision and how we're going to become more divergent and how we're going to focus our limited resources. So there's strategy and tactics, but quarterly, you should be revisiting both, tweaking it. There's not one strategy out there that's still relevant today if it was built before COVID coming around. So if anybody still hasn't redone their strategy at this point, you're flat-footed in the race. It's time to, to pick up the pace. <laughs> I have a question uh, before we jump to the fine questions. You said whenever you have that sit down, and we don't have to necessarily mention a company name, but whenever you have the 28 page report with a big company, again, no name mentioning, was there a case scenario that you just had like the biggest pushback towards like, no, that's not true. You're just trying to, you know, over exaggerate our problems, the biggest pushback that they just refused to accept that they had problems in their business. And after a lot of talking, 
they were able to actually see the problem and you were able to help them scale from there. Is there, and like, what kind of like, example, crazy pushback reasons you can get? Because it's not easy for a company to even admit sometimes that they, they're missing something. Oh, absolutely. As the old saying goes, pride goeth before the fall. And there are many uh, leaders, especially uh, if they're leading a company that's been running well for 10 years, 30 years, maybe 100 years. I, I've worked with a, a fifth generation company that was on the verge of, of bankruptcy. And their question to me, they were the, the first people I ever walked into the office and everybody said that they read the book. You know, I always heard Tom Peters used to say, nobody reads your book. Don't expect that. But they had read it cover to cover. And they, they asked almost sheepishly, could we save this company? I said, absolutely. And when they started to say, well, you know, are you sure we can make that happen? I was like, well, it depends. Depends on their commitment. You ask about the 28-page report. When I show that, yeah, there are people who say, I don't think it's worth that much, or I think it's worth more. The fact is, valuation is very much a science. Uh, almost all aspects of valuation at any time a company has been proven in court of law because of divorces and deaths and the state settlements and so forth. I work with some of the world's top advisors in identifying and, and clarifying and being able to defend in a court of law a valuation. And so to get a certified valuation, that's why most people have to pay $10,000, $15,000. I can do one for free and certify it for a few thousand dollars. But the, the, you know, with the auditors confirming the, the inputs of the number. And that's why I have the owners actually input the numbers with me. You know, we have to go over the last three years. We have to do a little bit of a projection of what the, the future might hold, what the future might hold if, if the, the founder were to leave or the CEO were to leave. And, and those, all the guesses have toggle switches. So we can say extreme impact to no impact at all. And we can guess and rerun the valuation. And that actually doesn't change things that much. And they can see that in real time as we're looking at the dashboard. So, yeah, there's some doubt about that. But in a way, that it, it depends on how relevant that is, for example, if they're going to sell the company. Uh, to me, the hard valuation you get doesn't matter as much as is there a strategy to sell this company to somebody who can get a lot more value out of it than what the equity value is stated in that valuation. And certainly, you're not going to be thinking about a liquidation or asset value of the company, although that happens. That's that's why a lot of company, you know, a lot of M&A and private equity firms will buy a company to break it up and just do an an asset sale because the assets are worth more than the business. That that happens with poor, poorly run companies, and and that's the epiphany that some companies have to realize. If that's very rare, I've only seen a couple of those where the assets were worth more than the company and. And, and then you have to discern, well, do we sell the real estate and, and the equipment and lease back or what uh, and use that capital to, to grow? Or, you know, that's part of the, the thought process that a lot of people haven't considered. And with publicly held companies, that's why they're easy takeover targets if they're poorly managed. Now, for all that, what you're asking is a story of um, both, you know, are there people who, who are blind and unwilling to change? Absolutely. I've never worked with a third generation or older company that went out of business, but I've definitely worked with a few that weren't going to grow. One of my favorite sayings from Peter Drucker is, if you keep doing everything that made you successful and brought you to here and don't change, eventually you will fail. And, and that's a fact. In fact, you can be too profitable. If your profits are too rich, you invite competition and you'll be taken over. And so, yes, I've worked with some people who whose profits were too much 
and competition eventually came. They were disintermediated. I've worked with a taxi cab company that wasn't innovating and was haughty about what a great business they were in. And then Uber came a couple of few years later. You know, that's just the quick example we would all be familiar with. But I've, I've seen several companies like that. But most of the time, my challenge, whether I'm sent in by a board of directors, private equity firm, or I'm just working with an owner because we've met or a friend referred me, I appeal, and I talk about this in Growth or Bust in, in the last chapter, if you haven't gotten to 13, I talk about the, the five inhibitors of growth. Uh, I talk about pride, greed, et cetera, and things that tend to cause abuse of, of the people and, and maybe even the community uh, from a business perspective. When I've been successful at turning a, an owner's mind around, I just have appealed to his or her self-interest. I've said, look, you know, your, your mom and dad lets you take over this business. You enjoy your golfing and everything, but people are unhappy. They're leaving. You're dying. And do you want to be the one to lose it or do you want to be the one to grow? It? You know, you got to make a decision here, but, but you're going to have a black eye in some way. And I don't, you know, it's different from one case to the next, but I, I usually get them to think about how they're going to suffer, how others are suffering. And maybe they don't care about that because they're narcissists. I've met narcissists who, who just don't think the world beyond them exists. It's rare. It's yeah. very rare. Most business owners love their people so much more than anybody realizes, so much more than they talk about. In fact, that's, I love doing that. I love getting that owner to, you know, they open up with me. And then I go out and talk to the entire company and tell, tell them how much. The owner literally, loves them. <laughs> literally, how it's, it's sometimes a mom and a dad who built this business from the time they got married or something to, uh, you know, a fourth generation, you know, owner that's been very quiet in the corner and sacrificed much. But, but yeah, you can usually turn around per, a person by just appealing to their self-interest and what the highest and best use both of, of their talent and resources are as well as the company's. Two fast, rapid questions. Yes. With two answers, two short answers. What does Mark do himself to innovate Mark, who he is, in order to be able to help the clients even more? If you can just name two things that it's just consistent all the time. Great question. In fact, just uh, yesterday afternoon and later today, I'll have two coaching calls with fellow, uh, a colleague and one one case today, and then a, a mentor and coach and somebody who's on my board of advisors. One of the greatest things I ever did was start a board of advisors of three of the wisest and most wholesome good guys I've ever met. One started a basically a Fortune 500 company, built it from uh, $60 million to, to $6 billion. Sandy wrote the introduction to my book, Growth or Bust. And uh, another is, is one of the best turnaround CEOs I've ever met. And another is just one of the wisest guys I've ever met, an 85-year-old Irish gentleman with a thick Irish accent. And uh, I just was talking to Declan yesterday, and he gave me some advice as what I should do in regards to my own self-development, as well as raising the bar in the company. And so, yeah, we, we, uh, that's one way. The other way is I read about 50 to 100 books a year using Audible. I can listen to them at quadruple speed. I can usually listen to somebody reading slowly at quadruple, but at least double. And uh, so it's easy to get through a book a week, uh, a couple books a week, if you're in the mood, uh, driving a lot or whatever it may be. 
but accountability in a variety. And that's the other thing I do is I, I run uh, CEO growth clubs, not roundtables, not peer groups, but growth clubs where literally everyone in that group, uh, I've got one where everyone has a one to $5 million business. So they're really, you know, small for the typical consultant. And yet uh, not one of them lost money in the toughest year in many years last year. And they all grew. In fact, some grew very significantly. And the reason being is because we had this monthly accountability to all of us uh, to to raise the bar. And we are very organized about capturing both their vision, their growth levers and constraints. And then we facilitate innovation dialogue and we all dump out our hearts in regards to what most concerns us. And I've even facilitated these remotely. And so I get a lot out of that. And I'm able to share my own issues there as well. So you quadruple the audible. I do two times, but I have. I think it would be too fast for you know for even faster. Yeah. Um, and that actually went really great to my uh, second rapid question before the closing questions. What are your two most must go to suggested books? Or three, if you can just pick. Yeah, yeah, points. yeah. Oh, that's you. Were, Besides you were, your book. <laughs> yeah. Well, I actually, it really is my book because I almost always, with every conversation I have with an owner, uh, I'm like, oh, that's in chapter, in fact, it's page 64 <laughs> to 67. What you're talking about is getting your leadership team. Paragraph on. three, sentence two, it's right. Oh, uh, oh, you're working on your sales team trying to get uh, to become it's Chapter nine, that's chapter nine, right? That's right. Yes. Yeah. Page 181 through 187. I, I, saw the, I saw the table of content. I was like, hold up, sales, this got my interest. Good for you. Well, so I, I do that, but then also the bigger books, it depends. It's more when people are beginning almost like if they have a challenge with interviewing, okay, I go to, to Richard uh, Fears, uh, the evaluation interview. If they're having a, a, I have negotiation tools, but one of my favorite negotiation books of late would be um, Never Split the Difference. Chris Voss, that's a yep. good one. Yeah. If it's it's more heady, if they're open to real heavier management theory and and yet also application and tactics, Peter Drucker's stuff is just the best. Nothing there's nothing new under the sun that Peter didn't already write about. So the practice of management dates back to 1954. He wanted to have a book called The Strategy of Business. That's where his publisher slapped him and said, "No, you, that that's not a business word. Come up with something else." So sometimes I refer people to, to certain of his books. It, it really depends what their their holdup is. And oh, you know, fiction. A lot of entrepreneurs I work with are about to go through a maturing process. And I tell them if if, if they're big readers, I'll say read it. If they're not, I say read a synopsis and read this one thing in this book. And that's Ayn Rand. I think she was the smartest philosopher of the 20th century, her book, Atlas Shrugged. And the reason it's valuable, you know, some would say, oh, she was, she was a godless, uh, you know, anti-religion person. Yeah, you know, just look at it from the entrepreneurial mindset side of things. All of her heroes were entrepreneurs who were innovating significantly and saving society from itself. That's her theme. And if and society was calling them out or calling them to uh, evil, but what their attitude toward all that and all the midst of this hurricane, they were in the eye of the storm, and they always remained calm. They never got unsettled. They never got resentful. 
I noticed that there's this maturation of true entrepreneurs who hear the call, who know that they're there to serve mankind. And yet it, when they get stressed out, I'll point out that book and I'll say, just read the way that, that Reardon or Dagny Taggart, the, the uh, hero of the story, how she calmly learns to become more calm yeah. like all the other heroes of the story. That would be one that you know would be more philosophical. I have to check that one out. I have not heard of that. I'm okay, currently actually, doing the Toyota way from Dr. Deming. Great uh, I have book. not done that one. I just got the Toyota way currently. So I'm excited for that one. De Deming's uh, book, I thought it was something to do with the principles of quality. There's 11 principles in it. That's kind of the classic that you should also look at or at least listen to the summary. The, so the, the Toyota way, the book that I got, it's written about what Deming did with Toyota, but it's not yeah. Deming's book. So yeah. I really want to read that and then get more into it. Oh, yeah. my God. Deming's book is actually shorter and easier to read, by the way. In fact, yeah. the founders of a theory usually write the best book, like Albert Einstein's book on relativity. Anybody could understand. Uh, I, I so. mean, yeah, you have <laughs> you have Carnegie, like uh, how yeah. to influence people is this much. And then it's you have the yeah. courses and then you have the deep material and the case studies with it. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. you build the foundation with it and it just explodes from there. <laughs> yep. Yeah. My very, I love this interview. Thank you. I know this is longer than typical interviews, you guys. And we said it will be like 30 to 40 minutes, but all of this content is amazing content. So uh, just go ahead and re-listen to it. But if somebody's like, hey, this is amazing. I want to connect with Mark. Uh, I want to see if Mark can even coach me because or to hire him. Where can people connect with you? Yes, you can call me at 513-621-8000. My website is growthorbust.com. Also, echelonmanagement.com, the name of my business. But the uh, email is mark at em1990.com. So M-A-R-K at Echo Michael stands for Echelon Management, 1990, the year we started, .com. There you go, Echo Michael. Military people got that right away too. <laughs> and who would be your ideal client? I know you work with Fortune 500 companies too, but if you have a mid-sized business that definitely wants to grow, get to the Fortune 500, would you be able to help them? Do you work yes, with I've worked with all size businesses. As I said, I, you know that one growth club is only you know seven figure businesses. But my ideal client is usually a nine, eight and or nine figure sized business. So you know ten million to fifty million to to one hundred and fifty million, two hundred fifty million, and it it's the ownership, which could be a family, it could be a couple, an individual, it could be a founder, often is, or an ownership a group like private equity. But here's here's a couple of the things. I remember I, I pinned this down. It was on the back of my first card that I, I printed up in 1990. And it was that we work with successful leaders that want to reach a higher echelon. So it's been leaders. So it's been leaders of sales teams, mm -hmm. leaders of the whole company. You know, my first products and offerings were really just sold to VPs of sales and, and sometimes CEOs. And then I got pulled into um, the strategy side of things. So, But it's people who are also humble. That's the other thing humble, successful. Most of them are successful. Now, I've worked with a lot of turnarounds too, but you know, it, there was a half dozen locations at John Deere uh, in their Nortrax division, a $17 billion division that, that were on the ropes. Some were going to be shut down and we were able to, to save them. So you know, sometimes we work with the big companies, but, but yeah, most 90 plus percent of all our clients have been that eight to nine figure range. And then there's been plenty of seven figure companies too. 
is there a new project that you're working on? Because I'm sure you're not just sitting there, you know, just taking it day by day. Any new project that you're working on that you also like to share with us? So for like with a, a client or a uh, myself, I, you know, in both areas, I could say that I've got a few clients right now that we're looking at buying some businesses. We have a lot of commercial credit lined up. We, so we've got a group that is examining businesses to buy that might even be part of a roll-up. That's exciting because not only are they going concerns, but as we bring in one of my favorite turnaround CEOs, there's several on my site, uh, we're going to amp up the growth of that business, but also probably the valuation significantly and maybe synergize it with some other businesses. And I'm excited for my clients. I've got clients that own uh, four or five, six businesses in one case and, and one in a couple of them, uh, they literally could franchise and create uh, what, what now might only be a umpteen, 20 million business to nine figures. And, and it's been exciting. Franchises, you know, they, they could they could take over the because they have such a strong offering that they could revolutionize an industry. And, mm -hmm. and so I have a couple of clients like that, that we've got some projects that are pretty exciting. In fact, yeah, I've got one of those calls coming up here and just about a half hour so and well since we are almost at the end of the interview besides the very last question what is your personal definition of success i think it's holistic you got to think in terms of where do i want to be in 100 years so first you got to start with the eternity and i believe we all have a soul so what's your goal there and then if we are created beings what what's our purpose what's our raison d'etre discern why am i here Life is worth living. And by living, I mean boldly and, and generously and dynamically to make an impact on whatever realm of influence you can have, whether that's just a handful of people in a family or your neighborhood, or it could be an industry or it could be a marketplace. And a marketplace could be as big as the, you know, the east side of your city, or it could be as big as an entire industry of certain type of engineered good. But the bottom line is uh, you've been given a set of gifts and to be truly successful, you need to be focused on, you know, what is my ideal outcome long-term, mid-term, mid-term being, you know, 20 years, 50 years from now, and then short-term, you know, just over the next few years. And then when you think about all that and you create a, a, a life vision and a life mission, uh, it becomes a lot easier to think about your day-to-day -day priority management. And, you know, what's the most important thing that I most, in fact, here's a great story to wrap up on that will help everyone listening get literally an hour more done every day. So the first person to make a million dollars as an executive in the world was a man named Charles Schwab back in the early 1900s. And he came up with the idea. He worked for Carnegie for a while, the steel magnate, Andrew Carnegie. And he came up with the idea to do a roll-up. And so he went to people like J.P. Morgan and other millionaires, with what would be billionaires of today. And he bought a lot of little steel companies, rolled them up, and he built Bethlehem Steel. And he was running Bethlehem, making a million a year, and brought in the consultant of the day, Ivy Lee of Lee & Associates. And back then, we didn't have terms like strategy, but uh, rather, they were called PR firms because business was such an evil concept to the world because it was growing so fast in this, you know, young nation of the United States of America. So that was part of what Ivy did. But Ivy also was a management consultant. 
And he would follow around the CEO, new CEO client for a week or two, just shadow him the complete week and uh, or two. Usually it was a couple of weeks. But after two days, he's being dropped off at the hotel and he leans in and tells uh, Charles, he says, uh, hey, Charlie, tomorrow I'm just going to meet you at the office. I'll see you there at seven o'clock and I'm going to wrap up the engagement tomorrow. We're, we're going to we're finished here. Talk to you then. And, and Schwab was beside himself. He had told his board of directors, we're bringing in the, the big league guys. You know, we're bringing in the consultants of the day, the McKinsey of the day. And uh, it could be hundreds of thousands of dollars we spend on this. Oh, my gosh, that's the biggest for consulting. So he was embarrassed, couldn't sleep. He goes in, he's beside himself. Ivy Lee walks in and uh, he sits down. He says, OK, you ready? And Charles said, so this is really it. He says, yep, you got a pen and paper? Yep. Okay. Number one, every day before you leave the office, you're going to make a list of the six most important things you need to do tomorrow. Number two, he throws down his pen. He's like, wait a second. You mean that? He says, just humor me. Let's finish this and then you can berate me or whatever. I don't care. Number two, you're going to number that list of six items in order of priority. Number three, you're going to come in the next day and you're going to start with number one. And when you're finished, you'll go to number two. And if a fire literally comes up or figuratively comes up, go put it out and come right back to where you stopped and get back to the list in order of priority. And so he throws down his pen again. He says, fine, what do you expect me to pay you for this? And Ivy Lee got up and said, nothing yet. Do it for 28 days and send me a check for whatever you think it's worth. And he turned around and he walked out. And Schwab was so upset, he, he only had one thing he could do, to do it for do 22 it. days. Because <laughs> he couldn't tell anybody he just got fired by the consultant. <laughs> he did it for 28 days. In fact, on the 28th day, he sent a check for 28 thousand dollars, which is 660,000 in today's dollars to Ivy Lee, just for that first step of the process. Because eventually he said, I want you to come back and teach everybody the same thing. And then we can begin getting into what we would call strategy stuff now and, and other management growth oriented items. And by the way, they went from being a fortune 50 to the largest company in the world, publicly held company in the world. Here's the point is before you get to all the strategy stuff, you got to have a way of taking it down to day-to-day -day action. And if you do that one thing, and I know this for a fact because I've actually trained people just on priority management. There you go. I love it. This is my yeah. list. I do it the night before. <laughs> well, for everybody listening. And all this is new page every day. <laughs> yeah. So if if you do that one thing, the, the research shows, it used to be reported in the Wall Street Journal at New Year's every year, you can increase your daily productivity and get 63 minutes of more stuff done every day with that short little plan. And a you'll whole get an extra hour, a whole extra hour without working an extra hour. And you'll be less stressed. I've had clients tell me they sleep better at night. Uh, you'll spend less money. You'll have less FedEx packages going out, things like that. Less missed deadlines, less, uh, you know, uh, lost pieces of business, whatever. But the, the most important thing 
is that you get the most important things done first, which makes you more successful. And this was with the whole point of Stephen Covey's research into quadrant two time management. It's the non-urgent high priority items that get procrastinated upon too, uh, too much is that is the greatest limiting factor to success. And so it, it's not just a definition of success. It's, a, it's an application and implementation because it's not just about strategy. It's about implementation. And that's what the objectives really are for a company is they are the implementation items. But then it ultimately comes down to us as individuals. What's, what should I be working on now? And that's the question you must always ask. In fact, you know, again, Drucker came up with the term time management. Now Alan Lakin ran with it. But that's the, the, where the rubber meets the road. You, you can formulate the greatest strategy, but without implementation, you have nothing. So everybody out there, do that for 28 days and then send me a check for whatever you think it's worth. Do I get a commission fee since I'm the Yes, you do. Okay, cool. <laughs> Mark, thank you so, so much for being a part of the show. I love this interview. I've learned a lot myself, as a matter of fact. And I hope the audience learned as much as uh, I did or even more. And absolutely, guys, 20 days, even if that's the only thing you can take from this episode, do that and send Mark a check, but also cut me the commission. All right. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. Thank you so much. Godspeed. This podcast is a 6-7 Radius production. To learn more about 6-7 Radius, our services, and how we can help you strategize your marketing and increase your sales, click the service tab on connectwithromina.com.